You know, most people's sense of happiness or contentment or being at peace in the world is derived from one of two things. The first thing is their relationships. Think about the relationships that you have. The relationships that you have with parents, with spouses, with friends, neighbors, coworkers, perhaps in a church family, these things, if they're going well for you, can give you some happiness and excitement and peace. When you have good relationships with those that you interact with regularly, this is a good thing, and it contributes to our contentment and satisfaction in life when our relationships are going well. Now, the second thing that impacts our well-being is our circumstances. Our circumstances. How are things going for us? And on any given day, things might be going well or things might be going terribly. On any given day, things might be going well or things might be going bad. And if you live long enough, you'll see both. If you live long enough, you'll see good days where things are wonderful and the sun is out and, and things are all turning up roses. And if you live long enough, you'll see days that are so dark you just want to pull the covers over your head and stay in bed all day. Well, with that said, when we talk about our relationships and our circumstances, let me submit this to you. Your circumstances can change and will change. They may get worse before they get better. Therefore, your relationships are infinitely more important than your circumstances because your relationships with other people can sustain you even when times are tough. When you have a good relationship with God foremostly, but also with others, and you have a support network, and you have people who care about you, and you have people checking in on you, and you've got people lifting you up, when that's going well, you can shoulder so much more hurt in the world around you than if your relationships are broken. Now, in time, you will have things go wrong. If, if they're not wrong today, just wait for the future. Whether it's car accidents, cancer, hardship, hurricanes here on the Gulf Coast, there's all manner of things that you might not even see coming and it can mess you up. And when that happens, not if, but when that happens, the thing that helps and sustains you in the midst of life's storms is your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. Now, let's prove that point from Scripture. We're starting a 10-week study in the book of Philippians, and Philippians is widely regarded as the single most happy, joyful thing that Paul ever wrote. And if you're looking for happy Paul, joyful Paul, excited Paul, this is where you would look, the book of Philippians. With that said, let me ask you a question. Where was Paul when he wrote it? Where was Paul? What's that? He's in prison. Paul was in prison at the very time he wrote the happiest letter that he ever wrote. Now, what does that tell us about Paul? Well, among other things, it tells us this, that Paul's happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction with life was not contingent on his circumstances. Can you say that? So often, our happiness and our contentment and our joy and our satisfaction with life is contingent on whether our situation is idealized, where everything is going our way and the like. Well, good golly, if Paul was to have waited around until everything was going well in his life before he got happy, he would have been waiting a long time. This was a man, he wasn't just in jail like once. He was in jail multiple times. This was a man who was in jail and he was beaten. This was a man who was shipwrecked. This man had all sorts of things that were hard and difficult in life. And yet, he could be happy and joyful and content and satisfied because his happiness was not contingent on his circumstances the way so many of ours is. Again, the happiest thing that Paul ever wrote didn't occur when life was going great for him. It happened when things were going rough. But Paul had, he had a couple things going for him. One is he had a great relationship with his maker. 
He prayed. He sought God's face out. He lingered on God's word. He meditated on what God had said. He sang hymns even in jail. He had a good relationship with God, but he also had a good relationship with others with others, and that impacted him tremendously. I'm going to reread verses 1 and 2 of today's passage. We're going to see one of the relationships that Paul had with people who were caring for him, and we're going to see how that helped shore up his faith and his strength. So Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read this, and then we'll work our way forward from there. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, as we consider these two verses, let's remember what Paul's relationship with the Philippians was. Paul had relationships with lots of churches. There's all sorts of letters written to different churches, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Thessalonians, and the like. Well, here it's the Philippians. So what relationship did he have with them? If you were to go back if you were to go back into the book of Acts, if you remember, the book of Acts gives kind of a historical record for what Paul did, where, and when. If you were to go to Acts 16, you would see that there was this time when Paul was trying to figure out, prayerfully figure out, where he should take the gospel. Now, he knew he was an apostle that was sent to the Gentile nations, and he got it in his head that where he ought to go is up into what we might call Asia. He was going to go north of where he was at. However, multiple times in Acts 16, we see that the Spirit of the Lord prevented him. It flatly says that God turned him around. He wanted to do one thing. He thought it would be good and wise and appropriate, and he had good intentions, and yet God turned him around. Now, Paul didn't know exactly what God had in mind, but then one night, Paul has this dream. Paul has this vision of a man in a region called Macedonia. And the man in the vision said, come to Macedonia. So Paul, figuring that this came from the Lord, that's exactly what he did. They went to Macedonia, and when they went to Macedonia, he went to a little Roman colony in Macedonia, and the Roman colony is called Philippi. So it's in Acts 16 that he goes to Philippi. Now, if you remember the encounters that he had in Philippi, it was an interesting time. He met Lydia, the cloth salesman. He was thrown into jail. He met the Philippian jailer there, that famous passage. There was a lot of things that went on during the short winter time that he was in Philippi. With that said, the people that he met there, in God's providence, God sent him to this region. When he went there, the people that he met and encountered and shared the gospel with, they became the nucleus, the core group, so to speak, of the Philippian church. It was a church that was planted in roughly 49 AD. Now, if we fast forward a bit from that story forward, if we fast forward several years later, we find that the church in Philippi is growing. It now has elders and deacons and the like. So the church in Philippi is doing pretty well in a tough circumstance. Remember, this is a Roman colony and a Gentile state, so to speak, and yet it's growing. However, even though the church in Philippi is doing well, the irony is that the guy who planted it is doing terribly. The guy who planted it has been shipped off to Rome. He's been shipped off to Rome where he's under the equivalent of house arrest and he's waiting trial by one of the greatest villains that history has ever recorded, Nero. As far as bad circumstances go, you take Paul, this Hebrew of the Hebrews, this lover of God and his church and his people, and you put him in a pagan setting far removed and then you put him under house arrest where he's confined and simply can't go about the way he would have been accustomed to. And then you add on top of that the fact that he's facing trial by one of the worst villains of all time. And you say that his circumstances could not possibly, could not possibly have been the source of his joy. 
because his circumstances were bad. His circumstances were terrible. So what then is the basis for his enthusiasm in this letter? Well, it was his relationship with God, and in this case, his relationship also with the church in Philippi. See, the people in Philippi had understood that Paul had been taken away and put under house arrest. Now, the church in Philippi had an option. They had an option. They could have had this mentality that said, well, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and well, I'm praying for you. Let's all send thoughts and prayers to Paul, everybody. Thoughts and prayers. They could have done that. And maybe they did do that. But that's not where they stopped. They didn't stop with the thoughts and the prayers, but they sent, they gathered support, they gathered finances, and they sent help to Paul. They sent him assistance. Now, why was that important if he was in jail? Well, the reason it's important is because jail is a relative term in this context. You see, Rome didn't have what we have now, you know, situations where you can be sentenced to 50 years or life, and then you're just thrown into jail, and you're fed and cared for by the state. That's not the way it worked. The option Paul had was this. He had to pay for his lodging and food and the like out of his own pocket. And if he didn't, even as a prisoner under house arrest, if he didn't pay for his own rent and board and all that, if he didn't take care of that, then what Rome would do is simply shackle him outside and see how long he lasted. The state, so to speak, wasn't going to spend a dime on the prisoners of the empire. That's just not what they did. And so the people in Philippi, understanding that and knowing what was going on with Paul, they knew that, dear heavens, if Paul's going to be supported, if he's going to eat, if he's going to live, people got to chip in. they got to help take care of Paul. And so that's what they did. They took an offering, so to speak. They maybe took several offerings. They said, we're going to take care of our brother who's done so much for us. Then they sent a man named Epaphroditus to go and to take this funds as support to Paul. And it's upon the receipt of that that Paul's so excited and encouraged. Because not every church did this. Mind you, Paul had ministered in a lot of settings. Not every church took care of Paul. But the church in Philippi did. Let's look at verses 3 through 11 to see his happiness. Verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Just as it's right for me to think of this for all of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me in grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You are my partakers in grace. You are my fellow servants. He's writing to the Philippians. He's saying, you are at my side. We're advancing the same kingdom. We're doing the same work. I may be doing it in prison in Rome, and you are doing it in Philippi, and yet we're engaged in the exact same thing, and because of that, I pray for you every day. You are in my heart. You know, over the years, the Apostle Paul has been described vocationally as a number of different things. He was a church planner, he was an evangelist, an apostle, a missionary. Now, when we think of some of those jobs, a church planner especially, or a missionary, that can sound like kind of lonely work that some guy just goes out and does. You send out an evangelist, you send out a church planner, what have you, it's almost like you're sending them out to the religious frontier to go and advance the kingdom. Well, yes and no. 
You're sending people, and yet the missionary, or in this case Paul, knows full well that just because they're on the front lines doesn't mean that they can do all the work on their own. There was another pastor, and he talked about this sort of work, church planning and mission work. He talked about in this context. He says that the individual who goes out into the mission field or plants a church, this is like the one who goes down into the well, down into the well, so to speak, down into difficult, maybe even dark and trying circumstances. Now, we need those individuals. We need people to do that. We need the missionaries that are on the back of the bulletin. We need these people that go down into the well, but that's not the only responsibility that the church has. We send people to go down into the well, but goodness knows they need people to hold the rope. They need people to hold the rope, to offer support and provision down line, to take care of them, to minister to them. This sort of work is not done in isolation. There's no part of the kingdom of God that's done by lone rangers. We're members of one another. And what Paul is saying is that even he, as great as he was and important as he was, and the Apostle Paul and all that, he wasn't doing this by himself. He relied upon others. And that's why he just thanks God that God has sent him a whole church of Philippi that's holding the rope for him, so to speak. And out of just his gratitude for this, he's praying to God that God would continue to smile upon the Philippians, praying for their favor. He wants love to abound in their midst and righteousness to fill them all. And he wants them to sincerely approve that which is true. That is a wonderful admonition for our church or for any church, to sincerely approve that which is true, that which is right. These are the things that he wanted. Now, with that said, before we move on to the next verses, I want you to take a quick look at verse 6. Verse 6 contains one of the most oft-quoted promises in all of Scripture. Specifically, it says this. It says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Now, like most famous passages... Sometimes we remember the verse, but we don't remember the context. He who began a good work and you will finish it. He who started a good work will complete it. So we oftentimes remember that verse and we apply it to a lot of things. We say when God saved you, when he chose you, when he elected you, when he sowed the seeds of faith in your heart, he who started a good work in you will finish it. And that's true. That's absolutely true. If God has chosen you, if he's redeemed you, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, then absolutely your story has a good end, even if in the meantime, In the story of your life, some of the chapters are kind of dark or difficult. You have a good end. He who started the good work in chapter 1 knows how the story ends for you. Now that's true for us as individuals, but it's also especially true for churches, at least the church here in Philippi. Paul is looking out to the Philippians and he says, you know, God didn't start this work just to to throw up his hands and quit somewhere down the road, but there's going to be a good outcome. He who started good work in you will finish it. In God's time, that which he has set apart for himself will be perfected by himself. Okay, let's look at verses 12 through 14. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me, remember, he's in jail, so something's gone wrong, but he says the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The things that happened to me actually have turned out well, even though I never would have expected it at the outset. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren now in the Lord, having become confident because of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If you're one of Paul's friends in Philippi, 
You know one of the questions you would have had about Paul's situation? If you love Paul and, and you remember, whoa, Paul is so great and he was so affectionate and caring. What a man this Paul was and the church he planted here. Man, Paul is a great guy. If that was your view of Paul, then one of the most pressing questions that you would have had at this time of Paul's life is why in the world, why in the world was Paul, if he was so good and wonderful and kind and loving and important in the economy of God for the advancement of the kingdom, why was he in jail? If you're in Philippi, dear heavens, God, is this an accident? You're thinking about your brother Paul and you're thinking, what happened here? Is God retired? Is he off to the side? Is he indifferent? Is his hands tied? What's going on here, God? What's going on? You wouldn't have understood this because the one you know is such a good guy and evidently loved by God, has apparently been forgotten by God because he's languishing in prison. There were people who asked that exact question or some variation of it at that time. Well, Paul's giving the answer in these verses. He's addressing the question that he knows that they have, and perhaps it's a question that Epaphroditus passed on to him. He says, all right, and this is in the very start of his letter. He addresses the 800-pound, you know, the elephant in the room. He says this. He says, I want you to know, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that happened to me, as bad as they were, the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Oh, Philippians, if you think that I'm not being used because I'm in prison, you got it all wrong. I'm being used even more so in this current context. Be encouraged by that. God doesn't just use you when your situation's great. God doesn't just use you when everything's going well in your life. Oftentimes, some of the greatest refinement that will happen to your character, some of the ways he'll use you the most, is in circumstances that you would never call down upon yourself. That's what happened here. And this is standard. Do you know the amount of times that the prophets were used of God mightily, even though their situation was abysmal? It happened all the time. The prophets rarely understood their circumstances and hardly ever liked their circumstances. Just read them. The prophets were always looking, wringing their hands over what was going on in the world around them. Like us in our weird present age, they look to the left and the right and things are going on. They don't know what to make of it. And yet God was using them. He's using Paul here. He's, he's using you in whatever your circumstance is. Good golly, if he could use Paul so often in jail, it seems like Paul spent most of his ministry in jail. If God would use Paul so often in jail, if God could use lion's dens and fiery furnaces and exile and the like to bring about good fruit, I submit this to you, that's not a rarity, that's the norm. That God takes tough circumstances, things you don't want, and uses them to refine his people. Whatever the case, Paul's saying that, look, here in Rome, I have an opportunity in this pagan culture to minister to the palace guard. These are individuals that have some influence in the Roman community. He says, I can influence the palace guard and other prisoners here. They're hearing the gospel for the first time. And as they hear it, others are being given confidence by what they're seeing go on. And Paul says they're learning to speak boldly without fear, all because... God had the wisdom and the love to put me in chains. From this statement, it would seem that Paul's arrest was galvanizing others. You know, martyrdom is a fascinating thing. Read Fox's book of martyrs sometime, you'll see what I mean. But martyrdom in the early church is a fascinating thing because martyrdom, whether it's prison, persecution, death, what have you, was often flashpoints 
for the rocket launch of faith in the community of those who loved and watched men and women go to their death pronouncing faith in Jesus Christ. Persecution has always been a means by which the church has grown. It doesn't mean it's enjoyable, make no mistake about that, but there's a quote that's often assigned to the first few centuries of the church which says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In a sense, this is what Paul is saying. Paul was saying that God is using the persecution brought upon me to make other people more faithful. Why? Because when they see in the midst of my chains, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the deprivation, when they see me stand fast and share the gospel, in the midst of all that, it makes them bolder. It makes them stronger in their own faith. I guarantee you, Across the history of the church, moments of galvanization of God's people is when leaders in the body or just saints among the church are put to the point of a decision and they will not back down. When they will contend for the name of Jesus Christ, come what may. That has the effect of shining the brightest light on the gospel of Jesus Christ as any action we can undertake. Well, Paul was doing it and others were watching. You know, a number of years ago, there was a little boy, a little child, and he was out on the playground, and as he was watching, there was a bigger child that was picking on one of his smaller friends. So you got this child, he's watching this bully pick on a smaller friend. Now, as this kid watched, he knew he didn't have the means, the wherewithal to take on this guy on his own, and yet he couldn't watch his friend, his younger friend, get bullied this way. So he got mad. He balled up his tiny fists, he got a look of determination on his face, and And he stepped up to the bully. Well, here's what happened. As he did so, the bully didn't know quite what to make of this. But others, and the group were watching it, others also stepped forward. The bully took one look at that and turned around and went the other way. The courage of this one, the strength and determination of this one, was the means by which others found their own courage, found their own strength, and did what they knew to be right when they watched someone else do it first. Our world needs leaders like this. Our world needs those who do what's right, come what may. And when individuals do this, others are watching and others respond. That's what we see in verse 14. Bravery begets bravery. He says, most of the brethren of the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. All right, let's look at our final verses now, verses 15 through 18. Verse 15, now some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed to the defense of the gospel. What then? What do I make of this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. Let me ask you the easiest question you'll be asked today. In the New Testament, how many apostles did Jesus originally call? It's not a trick question. How many did he call? The twelve. Twelve. Twelve apostles. He called twelve of them at the outset. Now, with that said, he calls twelve apostles, but how many disciples did Jesus have? How many disciples? Now, that's harder because we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because there's a lot more disciples than there were apostles. There was a lot who came to the gospel, who came to Jesus Christ through the ministry of Christ and of others. Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, there were disciples that are far more numerous than apostles. An apostle was a rare, special, set-apart office with rare, special, set-apart gifts and responsibilities. Not everyone who was a disciple was called to be an apostle. Now, with that said, do you think 
that of that larger group of disciples, that any of them ever got jealous of the apostles, of the guys who got to hang out with Jesus all the time. Do you think they ever got, got jealous of that? Well, you, you better believe it. I mean, even among the apostles, they had jealousies. Do you remember the debate they had about which one got to sit next to Jesus and his kingdom to come? Even the apostles would have envy and jealousy and the like. Well, of course there were people who looked at even Paul in this context and says, well, Paul's not so great. What's so hot about Paul? I mean, that was true of all the great individuals of Scripture. Happened to Moses all the time, too. What's so great about Moses? How many times did the people try to run down Moses? Like, he's not so hot. Well, they were doing that here, Paul, too. There was some, even some who loved Jesus, even some who were saved, who still were selfish because that's something sin does. Sin can pervert our motivations. Even if we're doing the right thing, we can do it out of poor motivations. Well, Paul seems to be identifying that there's some doing that. On the flip side, there's many who are doing things rightly and out of goodwill, doing what they're supposed to do and the way they're supposed to do it. But from Paul's perspective, he says, look, whatever they're doing, whatever their motivations are, so long as Jesus is preached, I'm good. So long as Jesus is being preached, it's not about me, it's about him. All right, as we look to wrap up this morning, let's briefly summarize what we've learned. Now, as we said at the outset, the letter of Philippians is a joyful letter. This won't be the only happy passage we see. We're going to see some others in the time to come. So it's a joyful letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the saints at Philippi who were caring for him by sending him help when he was in need. Now, beyond thanking them for what they had done, we saw that Paul also wanted them to know that what was happening to him was not a divine accident, that this was indeed part of God's plan. God was doing great things, even if the situation didn't seem to be ideal. And then furthermore, finally, we saw that his imprisonment was being used by God to motivate other people. He's telling the Philippians, he says, look, yeah, I am in prison, but you can't believe how much good stuff's going on here. You can't believe how much good stuff is going on. In my own ministry, I'm talking to the palace guard, I'm talking to prisoners, and we're singing songs and the like. Things are really going good in my ministry here in jail and Rome. But that's not the only thing that's going well. Wait till you hear this. There's others. There's others who are hearing this and hearing the gospel, and God's changing their hearts, and he's sending them out into this mission field in Rome. And the proof was that this was a mission field was that in time, Rome would become Christianized because of efforts like this. This incredibly pagan setting with this incredibly pagan villainous Caesar would ultimately yield. The gospel would take down strongholds and overcome, overcome all the Roman prejudices and paganism and usher in days of hope and spiritual health. So this is the message to the Philippians. He said, God can do great things even when our circumstances aren't great. Now as we close, let me make it personal. In a room this size... For some of us, this has been a great week. For some of us, this year has gone, wow, gangbusters. What a year 2021 is turning out to be. You may be in the minority, quite honestly, the way the past couple of years have gone, but that may be true of some of us. For others of us, this year is no better than last year. For others of us, there may have been things that have come on our radar here. Hardships, diagnosis, things have happened that are not good. Things that are just bad. If you live long enough, you'll see both days. You'll see days that are good and joyful, and then you'll see days that are not so hot at all. They happen to Paul all the time. He had good days and he had bad. But as we saw with Paul, his circumstances were not the source of his joy. And as I asked earlier, the question is, 
What is the source of your joy? Is it your situation, your circumstances? Are you only happy when things are going well and right? Or do you have some sense of peace and contentment, even as the hurricane swirls around you? As we said before, if you have a good and abiding relationship with the one who has made you, that can make a world of difference. If you add on top of that a good relationship with others, especially in a community of faith, man, if that's true of you, then nothing can stop you. There's no hardship you can't face if God is on your side and if the family of faith is encouraging you along the way. Don't deprive yourself of that. The amount of people who do who live their lives on the periphery of the faith as if faith is less than important to them, as if they don't really need the church because they're strong enough and the church is a crutch for others. There's a lot of people who think that way, and that's wrong. When the hard days come, when something happens to you, a spouse or a child, you want the community of faith to descend upon you with grace and love and, and care and provision. This day, if your relationship with your God, your maker, is strained, turn to him. He will not chase you away. Like the father of the prodigal son, his arms are ever ready to come upon you and hold you tight to himself. Don't chase him away. Don't reject his love. At the same time, don't keep the church at arm's length either. Embrace the church and those who are looking to embrace you. And as you do so, you can face whatever this life may throw at you. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.